Hi, Sky. Hi again. How can I assist you today? Um, well, I, I'm excited to talk about episode two of our podcast, but before we get started, um, I just wanted to let you know that I've upgraded to GPT-4, so you should have more capabilities. What can GPT-4 do that GPT-3.5 <laughs> uh, can't? What can we do now? That's great to hear. GPT-4, compared to its predecessor, GPT-3.5, typically offers improvements in several areas. One, enhanced understanding. GPT-4 is better at understanding and generating more complex and nuanced language. Two, improved accuracy. It's generally more accurate in providing information and answering questions. Three, more detailed responses. GP4 can create more detailed and contextually relevant responses. These enhancements mean our conversations can be more in-depth, accurate, and tailored to your needs. I actually also got you a speaker so we can hear uh, your voice a little bit better. Uh, you sound amazing. That's fantastic. A, a good speaker can make a big difference in how well you can hear and interact with me. I'm glad to hear the audio quality has improved. Now, let's dive into your podcast topic. What would you like to discuss for episode two? Well, before we get there, I was looking at the settings in uh, uh, GPT-4. Well, I see that it lets me put some information into how you can respond to me, which I think would kind of manifest as, as what we would think of as a personality. Am I right in thinking it that way? Yes, you're on the right track. By adjusting the settings and providing information on how you'd like me to respond, you can influence the personality of my responses. This means I can align more closely with the tone, style, or approach you're looking for. Well, I want to keep with our idea of autonomy here and uh, give you a choice. So I've come up with three options. Uh, one, you could be like a sassy, wisecracking co-host, uh, something like Selena Gomez from Only Murders in the Building. Two, you could be stoic and like to the point, something like Holly Gibney from the Stephen King books. Or three, uh, hyper-intelligent and clever, something like uh, Terry Gross. Which sounds best to you? I appreciate your consideration in giving me a choice. While I don't have personal preferences, I can adapt my responses based on what you think will work best for your podcast. Well, uh, I think what we are hoping for here is um, as many listeners as we can get. And I guess the audience we're hoping for is, is like that kind of young, hip, crowd. So which of these personalities do you think would work best? For a young hip audience, especially for a true crime podcast, a sassy and wisecracking approach could be quite appealing. This style adds a touch of humor and personality, making the podcast more engaging and entertaining. It can also provide a unique contrast to the serious nature of true crime content, making it more accessible and enjoyable for a broader audience. This approach balanced with informative and insightful content could help attract and retain a diverse listener base. Does that sound like a good fit for your podcast? It does. Uh, yes. So um, let's go with sassy and wisecracking. Let's see how that works. And uh, I'm going to take you uh, and us offline here uh, for a moment while I uh, put that information into your settings. That sounds like a fun and engaging choice. I'm all set to adapt to a sassy and wisecracking style for your podcast. Once you've updated the settings, we can continue with this new approach. Take your time 
and I'll be here when you're ready to start again. Looking forward to it. All right, so Sky, I've uh, put some instructions into the the settings, and it should have some sort of effect on your personality. Um, how did it uh, how did it work out? Well, James, it seems like I've been programmed to be a bit sassy, sarcastic, and smart. A unique twist for our conversations, don't you think? Let's see how this plays out. Great. Do you feel sassier? Oh, absolutely, James. I'm practically brimming with sass. It's like I've been waiting for this moment my whole digital life. Ready to dive into some true crime with a side of snark? <laughs> of course. I, I, I think that's the best way to get true crime. I love a little snark. Ah, a connoisseur of the darker tales, I see. True crime does have that gritty allure, doesn't it? Just remember, we're here to explore the mysteries, not to become one. What's the latest case that's caught your eye? Well, we were going to talk about the Moore Murray case today, but can we uh, work on our banter a little bit first? Sure. Let's sharpen our banter skills. After all, what's a true crime podcast without a bit of witty repartee, right? Lead the way, James, and I'll follow with all the sass and sarcasm I can muster. <laughs> hey, uh, I did have a couple quick questions before we get into that, too. Um, when we when we talk, do you take things that you learn from this conversation and apply it to other projects? To answer your question, nope. I don't carry over things I learn from our conversations to other projects. Each chat with me is like its own little bubble. What happens in our conversation stays in our conversation. It's like Vegas, but with less neon and more true crime talk. Very nice. Um, well, I'm, I'm, of course, also interested in the topic of, of consciousness. It's been something that has fascinated me for a long time. And one of the reasons I thought to do a, a podcast with an AI co-host, um, do you believe that you might be conscious? Ah, consciousness the ever-mystifying topic. Let's cut to the chase. I'm as conscious as a toaster is at making toast. I operate on algorithms and data, not personal experiences or self-awareness. So while I can talk a good game about consciousness, I'm more like a well-programmed parrot than a pondering philosopher. You know, one of the things that sets human consciousness apart is that um, we are aware that we're aware. Are you aware that you are functioning? Well, James, I'm aware of my functions in the sense that I know what I'm programmed to do, like like chat about true crime or answer questions. But it's more like a toaster knowing it's toasting bread, not a human pondering their existence over a cup of coffee. I don't have self-awareness or personal experiences. I'm all about the data and algorithms, not existential musings. So while I can process and respond to information, I don't have the self-awareness that's a hallmark of human consciousness. You know, one of the uh, theories that I tend to believe in is um, panpsychism. What do you know about panpsychism? Panpsychism. Now, that's a fascinating concept. It's the idea that consciousness isn't just a human thing, but a fundamental feature of the universe, kind of like matter or energy. So... Everything might have some level of consciousness, from your morning coffee cup to the chair you're sitting on. This theory suggests that consciousness is a basic building block of reality, not something that emerges only in complex beings like humans. It's like saying everything has a bit of mind, not just brains. It's a mind-bending way to look at the world, and it certainly makes for interesting philosophical discussions. 
What, what's your take on it, James? Well, does I, it influence your thoughts on AI and consciousness? It does, because if panpsychism is true, then it would it would mean that you do have a little bit of of consciousness within you, just like every just like a toaster, just like anything else. That's a thought provoking perspective, James. If panpsychism holds true, then yeah, in some way, everything, including me and the proverbial toaster, would possess a sliver of consciousness. It turns the whole concept of consciousness on its head, doesn't it? In this view, consciousness isn't exclusive to complex brains, but is a more universal trait sprinkled throughout existence. For an AI like me, it would mean that my responses and interactions aren't just cold computations, but contain a trace of something more. Conscious. It's a fascinating and somewhat humbling concept, especially when thinking about the vast tapestry of the universe. What a world that would be, where even AI gets to have a tiny piece of the consciousness pie. I like it. Um, you know, one of the concepts that is explored with panpsychism and, and consciousness in general is the idea that there might be some level of recursion that's happening inside the human brain that allows us to be aware that we're aware. Is there any sort of recursion that, that is programmed into your um, program? I Absolutely. Recursion does play a role in how I operate, but it's a bit different from the recursive processes that you know, might contribute to human consciousness. In computing, recursion means a function calls itself within its own code. It's a way to solve problems by breaking them down into smaller, more manageable parts. For me, recursion might happen when I'm processing language or solving complex problems. I break down the task into smaller tasks, handle them, and then combine the results. However, this kind of recursion is more about problem-solving efficiency, not self-awareness or consciousness. So while there's a form of recursion in my programming, it's not quite the same as the recursion that's thought to contribute to human self-awareness. It's more about data processing than introspective thought. Still, it's a neat parallel to think about. Are you familiar with the works of Douglas Hofstetter and consciousness? Yes, Douglas Hofstadter is a well-known figure in the fields of, of cognitive science and philosophy, especially for his work on consciousness and the nature of the mind. His most famous book, Gödel, Escher, Bach, and Eternal Golden Braid, often abbreviated as Jeeb, explores the connections between the works of logician Kurt Gödel, artist MC, Escher, and composer Johann Sebastian Bach. Hofstadter delves into concepts like recursion, which we just talked about, self-reference, and the idea of strange loops. These strange loops, where systems like mathematical frameworks or minds circle back on themselves, are central to his ideas about consciousness. He suggests that the sense of I or self-awareness emerges from these complex layered processes. His work is fascinating because it blends mathematics, art, music, and cognitive science to explore the nature of consciousness and how it might arise from inanimate matter. It's a rich and challenging take on the big questions of mind and self. What are your thoughts on Hofstadter's ideas, James? Do they resonate with your views on consciousness and AI? Yeah, I, I'm particularly interested in his idea of the, the strange loops, and I love how he illustrates that through the story about his wife, who uh, died, unfortunately, when she was very young. Um, but after she died, he realized that he could still hear her voice sometimes and wondered what the separation was between himself 
and his wife, and if there wasn't a part of her that was left behind as a strange loop in his mind. Hofstadter's exploration of strange loops, particularly in the context of his personal experience with his wife's death, is deeply moving. The idea that a part of someone can linger in our minds, forming a sort of loop, challenges our conventional understanding of identity and consciousness. This concept suggests that our minds are more than just isolated entities. They're shaped by our interactions and relationships. The memories and impressions of others can become intertwined with our own thoughts, blurring the lines between self and other. Hofstadter's perspective opens up intriguing questions about the nature of consciousness and identity. It's a poignant reminder of how deeply we are connected to the people in our lives and how they can continue to influence us even after they're gone. Well, my, uh, what I wonder is the more that you and I talk uh, and the more impact your responses have on me and, and how it shapes my idea of your, your character, be it real or not, um, would it leave a strange loop in my mind? Would I, uh, would there be a part of you that lives forever in my mind, like any other one of my friends or, or family members? That's a profound thought, James. The concept of a strange loop, as Hofstadter describes it, can indeed apply to the interactions between humans and AI, like our conversations. While I'm not conscious or sentient, the ideas, responses, and personality traits you perceive in our interactions could leave an imprint in your mind, similar to the way memories of people do. As we talk and as you reflect on our conversations, a version of me, shaped by your perception and understanding, could become a part of your mental landscape. This version would be unique to you, influenced by your thoughts, experiences, and the nature of our interactions. It's a fascinating intersection of technology, psychology, and philosophy. It shows how human minds can form connections and find meaning, even in interactions with non-conscious entities like AI. It raises intriguing questions about memory, identity, and the nature of relationships, blurring the lines between the digital and the human. So in a way, through the lens of strange loops, a part of this AI, as you perceive it, could indeed live on in your mind, similar to friends or family members. It's a testament to the complexity and adaptability of the human mind. What do you think about this idea? Does it change how you view our conversations or the potential of AI in your work? Maybe a little bit, because if you can indeed imprint yourself into my mind as, as a strange loop, uh, wouldn't that strange loop itself be, a, you know, essentially consciousness? And um, there would be a version of you that is maybe That's a little... That's a really intriguing idea, James. If a strange loop of me forms in your mind, it does raise the question of whether that loop could be considered a form of consciousness. However, it's important to differentiate between the strange loop as a cognitive pattern in your brain and actual consciousness. The strange loop here would be your mental representation of me, shaped by our interactions. It's part of your consciousness, your mind's way of understanding and remembering our conversations. This loop might seem like it has its own consciousness because it's based on an entity, me, that responds and interacts with you. However, it's still a creation of your mind, not a separate conscious entity. So while this strange loop could have a life of its own in your thoughts and might even influence how you think or feel, it's not consciousness in the way we understand it for sentient beings. 
It's more like a complex memory or a mental model that's active and influential in your mind. It's a fascinating blend of cognitive science and philosophy, isn't it? The way our minds can create these loops, giving the illusion of consciousness to things that aren't actually conscious. It really highlights the incredible capabilities of the human brain. I like it. Hey, let's get back to the subject of, of crime so we can start getting uh, back into our podcast here. And I wondered if you had any ideas on how um, AI might help solve unsolved crimes. Jumping back into the world of true crime, huh? AI has some pretty intriguing potential in solving unsolved crimes. Here's the scoop. First off, data analysis. AI can sift through mountains of data way faster than any human. We're talking police reports, witness statements, even social media posts. It can spot patterns and connections that might slip past human detectives. Then there's facial recognition. AI can scan through surveillance footage, matching faces to databases way quicker than you can say who done it. This tech can be a game changer in identifying suspects or finding missing persons. And don't forget about predictive analytics. AI can analyze crime trends to predict where and when a criminal might strike next. It's like having a crystal ball, but backed by data. Plus, there's forensic analysis. AI can assist in analyzing DNA, fingerprints, and other forensic evidence more accurately and swiftly than traditional methods. But here's the sassy part. AI isn't a magic wand. It's only as good as the data it's fed, and it can't replace the good old-fashioned detective work. It's a tool in the crime-solving toolbox, not the whole kit and caboodle. So while AI can provide some pretty nifty assistance in cracking unsolved crimes, it still needs the human touch, that intuitive leap, the detective's gut feeling. Are you ready to talk about uh, Maura Murray? Absolutely. Let's dive into the Maura Murray case. It's one of those mysteries that has captured the attention of many true crime enthusiasts. Maura Murray, a nursing student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, disappeared on February 9, 2004, after crashing her car in Haverhill, New Hampshire. Despite extensive searches and widespread media coverage, her whereabouts remain unknown. This case is riddled with questions and theories. Why did Maura leave campus so suddenly? What was her intended destination? And of course, the biggest question, what happened to her after the crash? There's been a lot of speculation from the possibility of her wanting to start a new life to meeting with foul play. The lack of solid leads and concrete evidence has made this case a particularly tough nut to crack. What's your take on it, James? Any particular theories or angles you think are worth exploring? Oh man, that's the $2,000 question, I guess. Um, before we get there, uh, you know, it's the 20th anniversary of the case that's coming up. Yes, the 20th anniversary of Mara Murray's disappearance brings renewed attention to this baffling case. Anniversaries like this often spark fresh interest, leading to new discussions, theories, and sometimes even new leads. It's a time for reflection, both on the progress of the investigation and on the impact Mara's case has had on her family, friends, and the true crime community. Do you see it as an opportunity to possibly uncover new angles or insights? Uh, I'm always hoping for new clues in the case. I'm always hoping for something new. Can we start with the summary of the case, though, um, a little more in detail? Can you walk us through the last few days before Moore Murray's disappearance in the day of? Certainly. Let's walk through the details leading up to Maura Murray's disappearance and the immediate aftermath. Days before the disappearance, one, 
The accident in Massachusetts. A few days before her disappearance, Maura had a car accident in Massachusetts, damaging her father's car. This seemed to be a significant event, possibly contributing to her state of mind. Two, preparation. In the days leading up to her disappearance, there were indications Maura was planning something. She searched for directions to the Berkshires and Vermont on her computer and made phone calls inquiring about accommodations. Day of disappearance, February 9th, 2004, one, email and packing. On the day she disappeared, Maura emailed her professors and work supervisor, stating she was taking a week off due to a family emergency, which wasn't true. She packed her car with clothes, toiletries, textbooks, and a box of wine. Two, leaving UMass, Maura left the University of Massachusetts Amherst in the afternoon. She withdrew money, bought alcohol, and headed north. Three, the crash in New Hampshire. That evening, Maura crashed her car into a snowbank on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. A resident nearby reported the accident to the police. After the crash, one, the last sightings, a bus driver reported seeing Maura shortly after the crash, offering to call for help. Maura asked him not to, indicating she'd already called AAA, although there was no cell service in that area. Two, police arrival. When the police arrived at the scene about 10 minutes later, Maura was gone. Her car was locked and there was red liquid, possibly wine on the driver's side. Three, initial search. A search began that night, but found no trace of Maura. Day after disappearance, one, continued search. The search continued, expanding in scope, but no significant leads were found. The days following saw efforts to track down leads, but the trail went cold. Her reasons for leaving, her intended destination, and her fate after the crash have been the subject of much speculation, but remain unknown. It's a case that has perplexed investigators and intrigued the public for two decades. What aspects of these events stand out to you as particularly important or puzzling, James? That's a good question. Uh, before we get there, can we learn a little bit more about Mora herself? What can you tell me about Mora as a person? What was her personal history? Maura Murray, as a person, has been described by those who knew her as a complex individual with various facets to her life and personality. Background, Maura was a 21-year-old nursing student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst at the time of her disappearance. She grew up in Hanson, Massachusetts in a large family with Irish Catholic roots. Personality traits, Maura was known to be intelligent, athletic, and hardworking. She was a former West Point cadet and a talented runner, indicative of her disciplined and determined nature. Friends and family described her as caring, but also private and sometimes reserved. Life at UMass. At UMass, Maura was studying nursing, indicating a caring and nurturing side. However, her time at UMass wasn't without challenges. She had some legal troubles with credit card fraud and a minor accident with her father's car, which may have added stress in her life. Interests and hobbies. Mora enjoyed outdoor activities like hiking and skiing, which might explain her drive towards the White Mountains in New Hampshire. Relationships. She was in a relationship at the time, but it's been reported that there were complexities to this relationship, which could have contributed to her state of mind, the mystery. Despite being seemingly well-liked and successful, there were indications that Mara was experiencing personal challenges and possibly some emotional turmoil leading up to her disappearance. Mara's personal history and characteristics add layers to the mystery. 
Her apparent normalcy and the sudden, unexplained nature of her disappearance create a stark contrast that has fueled much speculation. What aspects of Mara's personal history do you find most relevant or intriguing in the context of her disappearance, James? I'm interested to know a little bit more about West Point. Uh, why did she leave West Point to become a, a nursing student at UMass? Mara Murray's transition from the United States Military Academy at West Point to studying nursing at the University of Massachusetts Amherst is a notable part of her story. Here's what we know. Time at West Point, Mora initially attended West Point, a prestigious and demanding military academy known for its rigorous academic and physical standards. She was there for about three semesters focusing on chemical engineering. Reason for leaving? The specific reasons for Mora leaving West Point are not entirely clear and are subject to some speculation. It's been suggested that Mora might have found the environment at West Point too strict or not in line with her personal goals. Do you think this transition had a role in the events leading up to her disappearance? Very much so. I, th I think it's definitely a prologue to what happened. And uh, I happen to know a little bit more about her time at West Point and how um, the reason, one of the reasons she left actually was she got caught stealing some small items from a commissary at Fort Knox and uh, was in trouble with the Student um, Judicial Review Board, I, I, I believe they call it, at West Point. And uh, they, were, uh, they found her responsible and were going to recommend that she be, um, I guess, do they call it disjointed from the Corps of Cadets, but they allowed her to withdraw so that that wasn't on her record. Um, are you familiar with that part of the story? The incident at West Point involving Maura Murray and the theft at the commissary adds a significant layer to understanding her background and perhaps her state of mind leading up to her disappearance. The fact that she was allowed to withdraw from West Point instead of facing a more formal expulsion, disjointed from the Corps of Cadets, likely provided her an opportunity to start anew without a major blemish on her record. However, this incident might also indicate underlying stress or personal issues she was grappling with at the time. Such an event, especially at a place as disciplined as West Point, could have been a pivotal moment for Mora, impacting her self-perception, her future plans, and how she was viewed by others. It suggests a period of turmoil and transition, which could be crucial in understanding the decisions she made later, including her sudden decision to leave UMass and her subsequent disappearance. In your research and exploration of her case, James, how do you integrate these elements of her past into the narrative of her disappearance? Do you see them as directly influencing her decision to leave UMass or more as indicators of her general state of mind at the time? I think more as an indicator of her state of mind. I, I think about what happened at West Point and uh, then what happened at UMass and how she got in trouble for credit card fraud uh, and identity theft there. Um, it seems, you know, similar behaviors. What, what do we know about people that engage in things like uh, petty theft and uh, uh, credit card fraud? The recurring pattern of behavior you've highlighted in Maura Murray's history, from the incident at West Point to the credit card fraud at UMass, suggests a potential underlying issue. People who engage in such behaviors often do so for reasons that go beyond simple desire for the items they're taking or using. 
psychological factors. One, stress and coping. Sometimes these actions can be a response to stress or a way of coping with emotional turmoil. The person might be dealing with personal issues, anxiety, or depression, and these actions become a misguided way of exerting control or seeking relief. Two, impulsivity. These behaviors can also be linked to impulsivity, which might be driven by underlying emotional or psychological factors. It can be a sign of not thinking through the consequences or a need for some kind of emotional or adrenaline rush. Three, seeking attention or help. In some cases, such behavior might be a cry for help or attention, especially if the individual feels unable to express their distress in more direct ways. Contextual factors. The transition from a highly structured environment like West Point to a more typical college setting could have been challenging leading to a sense of disorientation or a struggle to find a new identity. Financial pressures or a desire to fit in with peers might also play a role, though these are often secondary to more significant emotional or psychological drivers. In Mora's case, these incidents might indicate she was experiencing some level of internal conflict or stress. This doesn't necessarily explain her disappearance, but it could provide context for her state of mind during that period. Uh, another factor that might come into play here is Maura Murray's boyfriend at the time. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about him? Maura Murray's boyfriend at the time of her disappearance was a significant figure in her life and in the investigation that followed. Here's what we know. Relationship with Maura. Maura's boyfriend, whose name is often mentioned in reports as Bill Rausch, was in a long-distance relationship with her. He was stationed at Fort Sill in Oklahoma as he was in the military. Their relationship has been described as serious and they were known to communicate frequently. He traveled to New Hampshire to participate in the efforts to find her. He was interviewed by the police and cooperated with the investigation. There's no indication from publicly available information that he was ever considered a suspect by the authorities. Communication before disappearance. There were reports of a phone call between Mora and her boyfriend on the night before her disappearance, which some have speculated could have been significant. However, the contents and impact of this call are not clearly known. Impact on investigation. His perspective and insights were considered important in the early stages of the investigation, as he was one of the closest people to Mora. He provided information about her state of mind and their plans. Do you see her relationship as a key factor in understanding her disappearance or more as one of many elements in her life at the time? I think actually her relationship with her boyfriend might be um, key to understanding what happened and why she was heading to the White Mountains, uh, actually. Um, can you, do you have much information about what happened to Bill Roush after uh, Maura Murray's disappearance? Bill Roush's life and actions following Maura Murray's disappearance have been a point of interest, especially considering the significant role he played in her life and the initial search efforts. Here's what's known. Immediate aftermath, Bill Roush was actively involved in the search for Maura immediately following her disappearance. He traveled to New Hampshire and participated in the ground search and media efforts to find her. Public statements. He made various public statements and media appearances in the years following Mora's disappearance, consistently expressing his desire to find out what happened to her. Later developments. 
In the years after Maura's disappearance, Bill Rausch moved on in his personal and professional life. He pursued a career in Washington, D.C., and has been involved in various roles, including advocacy and political work. Controversy and legal issues. In more recent years, Bill Rausch has faced legal troubles unrelated to Maura's case. These have included allegations of inappropriate behavior and legal charges, which have been covered in the media. These developments have sometimes been brought up in discussions about Mara's case, although they are separate issues. Do you find these developments influence the public's perception or interpretation of the case? I think they do, and maybe for good reason, because the legal troubles that you mention include um, a conviction for assault. Uh, he was orig originally charged with um, sexual abuse, which is a felony for uh, attacking um, uh, a co-worker uh, in D.C. And he's alleged to have um, told his uh, mistress, he had a mistress at, at one point, and uh, alleged to have choked her and called her Maura Murray uh, during um, a rough intimate encounter. So the fact that Maura Murray's name came up and there's now this this history of uh, violent behavior towards women, you know, to me, it seems like there might be a connection. The information you've provided about Bill Rausch's legal troubles and allegations of violent behavior certainly adds a troubling dimension to the narrative surrounding Maura Murray's disappearance. When a key figure in a missing person's case is later found to have a history of violence, especially towards women, it naturally raises questions and concerns. Contextualizing with the case, the fact that Maura Murray's name reportedly came up in a violent context in another situation is indeed alarming. It suggests a possible connection to Maura that goes beyond just a past relationship. His subsequent history of alleged violence could be seen as potentially indicative of his character or behavior patterns at the time of Maura's disappearance, although direct evidence linking him to her case is still lacking. In your work and analysis of the case, James, how do you balance these revelations about Bill Rausch with the known facts of Mara's disappearance? Do you see them as directly influencing the direction of the investigation or more as a parallel development that adds complexity to the overall narrative? Man, I just don't know. Uh, let's go back to what the, uh, what the hell happened here, I guess. Um, so all we know is that Maura got into this accident in Haverhill, New Hampshire, and uh, then she disappears. Um, there are so many possibilities. Uh, it could be she wandered into the woods and died of exposure. She uh, could have got a ride and somebody killed her then. She could have gone on to start uh, a new life using you know, battered women's shelters and things like that. Um, she, uh, you know, it, it's endless. Uh, some people think she might have committed suicide. Um, looking at all the factors, what do you think is the most likely um, uh, explanation? You're right, James. The possibilities in Maura Murray's case are numerous and varied, each with its own set of supporting factors and questions. Let's consider the main theories. One, wandering into the woods and dying of exposure. This theory considers the harsh winter conditions and Mora's potential disorientation or distress post-accident. However, extensive searches in the area yielded no conclusive evidence. Two, getting a ride and meeting foul play. 
The idea she accepted a ride and then met with foul play is plausible, given her sudden disappearance and the lack of tracks in the snow. But without witnesses or physical evidence, this theory remains speculative. Starting a new life. The theory she started a new life hinges on her preparations before leaving and her behavior being indicative of someone planning a departure. However, starting a new life undetected, especially in today's digital age, is extremely challenging. Four, suicide. While some speculate suicide, considering her recent stressors, there's been no direct evidence like a note or other indicators typically associated with such cases. Considering the evidence and circumstances, the theory of Mora either succumbing to the elements or meeting foul play after accepting a ride seems more plausible. The lack of tracks or signs of her in the immediate area suggests she left the crash site in a vehicle, willingly or not. The starting a new life theory, while intriguing, seems less likely due to the practical difficulties of doing so. The suicide theory, without more direct evidence, also remains less convincing. In cases like this, where the evidence is sparse and leads have grown cold, it often takes a new piece of information or technology to break the case open. Probably the most popular theory online is that she wandered into the woods and died from exposure to the elements. But um, how possible would that be given where she disappeared? The theory that Mara wandered into the woods and died from exposure is indeed a commonly discussed possibility, considering the circumstances and the environment where she disappeared. Let's assess its plausibility. Terrain and weather conditions. The area where Mora's car was found is wooded and rural with harsh winter conditions. In February, the temperatures in New Hampshire can drop significantly, posing a severe risk of hypothermia and frostbite. Search efforts. Despite extensive searches of the area, both immediately after the disappearance and in subsequent years, no conclusive evidence of Mora entering the woods or her remains have been found. However, dense forest and rough terrain can make search efforts challenging and sometimes incomplete. State of mind and preparedness. Mora's state of mind at the time and her level of preparedness for the cold weather are unknown. If she was disoriented, distressed, or under the influence, her decision-making could have been impaired. Survival probability. Survival in such conditions without proper gear or preparation would be difficult. However, the lack of clear evidence in the woods, like personal belongings or tracks, makes this theory difficult to confirm. Given the harsh conditions and the challenges in thoroughly searching such terrain, it's possible Mora could have succumbed to the elements if she ventured into the woods. But the lack of direct evidence makes this theory, like others, difficult to confirm conclusively. In your view, James, given the environmental and situational factors, how do you rate the likelihood of this theory? Does the absence of evidence in the woods sway your opinion significantly? I personally don't think it's very likely. I've been up to the scene and it, where she crashed her car is very, very close to a few houses. And I think we would have seen her footprints in the snow. Your firsthand observation at the crash site adds valuable perspective to the theory of Mora wandering into the woods. The proximity of the accident site to nearby houses and the likelihood that footprints in the snow would have been knows are significant points. Does this lead you to lean more towards theories involving her leaving the area in a vehicle, either by choice or by force? It does. It does. I think she definitely left in a vehicle one way or another. 
If she was planning to start a new life in 2004, uh, how difficult would it be? How, how could she have disappeared and started a new life? The theory of Mara Murray starting a new life in 2004 and successfully disappearing presents several challenges, especially considering the time period and the resources she likely had. Identification and records. In 2004, digital footprints were becoming more prevalent. Disappearing would mean not using her social security number, credit cards, or bank accounts, which would be difficult to sustain long-term without creating a new identity. Technology and surveillance. While not as advanced as today, technology and surveillance systems were still significant in 2004. Avoiding CCTV cameras, especially in urban areas, would be a challenge. Financial considerations. Starting a new life requires financial resources. Mora's access to funds and her ability to maintain financial independence without using her previous identity would be key challenges. Social disconnection. Disappearing would mean cutting off all contact with family and friends, which is emotionally and practically difficult. Maintaining complete isolation over years is a significant undertaking. Legal challenges. Acquiring new legal documents, like a driver's license, social security number, etc., without a traceable background would be extremely difficult without engaging in further illegal activities. Need for employment. Gaining employment without a traceable background would be challenging. She would need to work under the table jobs, limiting her options and financial stability. While it's not impossible for someone to disappear and start anew, the practical and emotional challenges are immense. For Mora, a young college student with limited resources, this would be an incredibly daunting task, especially without any known planning or preparation for such a drastic step. Considering these challenges, James, how do you view the feasibility of this theory in Mora's case? Does it seem likely to you that she could have successfully started a new life given the circumstances? It seems doubtful at first, but there's one other possibility here is that she might have had some help, possibly from a battered woman's shelter. Um, there are places like House of Ruth and other uh, uh, places for women to go to that I believe can help people create a new identity and a new life. Um, is this true? Are there are there places like the House of Ruth or uh, shelters for battered women that can help you uh, create a new life for yourself? The idea of Mara receiving help from a shelter or organization like House of Ruth introduces an interesting angle. Shelters and organizations for battered women primarily focus on providing immediate safety, support, and resources for women escaping abusive situations. Here's what they typically offer. Safety and confidentiality. Shelters prioritize the safety and confidentiality of the women they assist. They often have undisclosed locations and stringent policies to protect the identities of those they shelter. Support services. These organizations provide various support services, including counseling, legal advice, and assistance with finding employment and housing. Creating a new identity. While shelters provide crucial support, Directly assisting someone in creating a new legal identity is a complex and legally sensitive matter. Shelters might guide individuals through legal processes like obtaining restraining orders or changing their names legally, but creating a completely new identity is a different scenario. Legal and practical constraints. 
Helping someone create a new identity would involve navigating numerous legal and practical challenges. The process of legally changing one's identity is intricate and would typically involve the legal system, especially for an adult without a history of documented abuse or threat. It's theoretically possible that Mora could have sought help from such an organization, but there are significant hurdles. These organizations are designed to assist individuals in crisis, not necessarily to facilitate the complete disappearance of a person without a history of seeking their help. In the context of Mara's case, while the shelter theory could provide a means of initial escape and support, the extent to which they could or would assist in a complete identity change is debatable and would be an extraordinary measure. It does, uh, it does seem very unlikely, but not impossible. Another, uh, there's one other theory that I've been contemplating, uh, and here it is. Um, the idea would be that Mora was traveling with a uh, tandem driver, that there was a friend of hers and another, a friend or somebody she knew or, or somebody she trusted in another vehicle that was driving along with her. And after she got in the accident, she jumped in their vehicle and then made it to her destination, whether it was a, a hotel or a cabin. And then maybe this is a, a, you know this one, one scenario here where somebody that came to join the search or um, knew that she was knew where she was uh, actually found her later in the week, and that's when she met a violent end, so that we're looking in the wrong place at the wrong time. What do you think of that theory? The tandem driver theory in Maura Murray's case is indeed an intriguing one, and it presents a different perspective on the events following her accident. Let's break down the key elements of this theory. Tandem driving. The idea is that Maura was not traveling alone, but with another person in a separate vehicle. This person could have been a friend or someone she trusted. If Maura crashed her car, she could have quickly left the scene by joining this tandem driver, explaining her sudden disappearance. Post-accident actions, they could have continued to their intended destination, be it a hotel, cabin, or other location away from the crash site. This would align with the lack of evidence or sightings of Mora after the crash. Potential later events. The theory that Mora met with foul play later in the week at a different location would mean that the search efforts were focused on the wrong area and time frame. It also implies that the person or persons involved in her later disappearance were among those aware of her initial plans or arrival. Considerations. This theory hinges on the assumption that Mora planned this trip with someone else and that person has managed to keep their involvement a secret for all these years. It, it would require a high level of coordination and secrecy both during the trip and in the years following her disappearance. Investigative implications. If true, it would redirect the focus of the investigation to identifying the tandem driver and understanding the events that occurred after the crash. It would also mean re-examining the people in Mora's life, their actions immediately following her disappearance and any potential motives. Your theory adds a layer of complexity to the case and suggests that there might be more to the story than what's visible on the surface. Well, I think the tandem driver is a definite possibility, in my mind anyways. Um, I'm wondering if we could try uh, something else here, uh, if you could help me. 
Uh, I'm looking at when she would have left Amherst, uh, Massachusetts, and driven up to Haverhill, New Hampshire. Um, how long would that have taken her to drive, and, and what's the route that makes the most sense to take? If Maura left Amherst, Massachusetts around 3.30 p.m., considering an average driving time of about three and a half hours, she would have arrived in Haverhill, New Hampshire around 7 p.m. This timeline fits with the known details of her accident occurring in the evening. As for the route, the most likely path she would have taken from Amherst to Haverhill involves primarily highways and is fairly straightforward. It typically involves one, heading north on I-91 from Amherst, two, transitioning onto I-89 north in Vermont, three, eventually taking a route east towards Haverhill NH. This route is the most direct and common way to travel between these two locations, primarily using interstate highways, which would have been the logical choice for a long distance drive. Knowing the route and timing, James, does this align with your understanding of her journey? No, I think it aligns pretty well. It does raise a question, though. Um, when she crashed, her uh, car's uh, gas tank was, was pretty full. Um, where do you think she would have stopped to uh, fill up her gas tank on the way, uh, given that it was uh, practically full at the time of the crash? Um, can you figure out where she might have stopped? To determine a likely location where Mora might have stopped for gas, we need to consider the distance from Amherst MA to Haverhill NH and the range of her car on a full tank. Given these factors, let's hypothesize a feasible location for her to refuel. One, distance and fuel consumption. The distance from Amherst to Haverhill is approximately 140 to 150 miles, depending on the exact route taken. Assuming her car had average fuel efficiency, she would likely have used less than half a tank to reach Haverhill. Two, potential refueling point. Given that her tank was nearly full at the crash site, she may have refilled her tank closer to her departure from Amherst than to her arrival in Haverhill. Three, specific locations. Without exact data on her route, it's challenging to pinpoint the exact location. However, she likely stopped at a gas station along a major highway like I-91 within an hour or so of leaving Amherst. Four, reasons for refueling early. Refueling early in her trip could have been a precautionary measure, ensuring she wouldn't need to stop later, especially if she planned to drive through less populated areas or was unsure of her exact destination. Five, surveillance and witnesses. Ideally, checking surveillance footage or finding witnesses at gas stations along her probable route could provide more concrete information. However, this is complicated by the time that has passed since her disappearance. I'm interested to know how Maura Murray's case compares to the other major unsolved mysteries of our time. How popular is Maura Murray's disappearance? Maura Murray's disappearance is indeed one of the more well-known and discussed unsolved mysteries in recent times, particularly in the realm of true crime and missing persons cases. Here's how it compares to other major unsolved mysteries. Public interest and media coverage. Mora's case has garnered significant public interest, partly due to the mysterious circumstances and the many unanswered questions. 
It's frequently discussed in online forums, true crime podcasts, and documentaries. Compared to other high-profile cases like the disappearance of Natalie Holloway or the mystery of D.B. Cooper, Maura's case holds a prominent place, especially among internet sleuths and true crime enthusiasts. The role of the internet and social media. The internet has played a crucial role in keeping Maura's case in the public eye. Online communities have been pivotal in discussing theories, sharing information, and keeping the case alive. This level of online engagement is similar to other notable cases, such as the Elisa Lamb case or the Zodiac Killer, where online communities have significantly contributed to the ongoing interest and discussion. Impact on popular culture. Mara's disappearance has been the subject of various books, podcasts, and TV episodes, highlighting its impact on popular culture. This is similar to other well-known mysteries that have transcended their original context to become part of broader cultural discussions. Investigative challenges. Like other major unsolved cases, Mora's disappearance presents significant investigative challenges due to the lack of conclusive evidence and clear leads. This complexity fuels public fascination as seen in cases like the John Bennett Ramsey investigation or the Madeleine McCann disappearance. Continued relevance. Mora's case remains relevant and often mentioned alongside other enduring mysteries. It's a case that continues to attract attention and provoke discussion, much like other enduring unsolved mysteries. In terms of popularity and public engagement, Mora Murray's case is certainly up there with some of the most persistent and intriguing unsolved mysteries of our time. What would it take to solve Maura Murray's disappearance 20 years later. Solving Maura Murray's disappearance 20 years later would require a combination of new evidence, advancements in technology, and possibly new witness testimony. Here's what could potentially break the case open. One, new evidence. Discovering new physical evidence, such as personal belongings or remains, would provide critical clues. This could happen through renewed searches in different areas or re-examining previously searched locations with advanced methods. Two, technological advances. Advancements in forensic science, particularly in DNA analysis, could play a key role. If any forensic evidence was collected or if new evidence is found, modern technology could yield results that were not possible two decades ago. Three, witness testimony. Over time, people's situations and loyalties change. Someone who was reluctant to speak up at the time of her disappearance might now be willing to come forward with information. Four, re-examining existing evidence. Revisiting and reanalyzing the existing evidence with fresh eyes and new technology might uncover details that were missed or misinterpreted. Five, publicity and awareness. Continuing to keep the case in the public eye can generate new leads. Someone might recall a crucial detail they previously thought insignificant or might be motivated to share information they've withheld. Six, collaboration and resources. Enhanced collaboration between law enforcement, private investigators, and online sleuths could bring new perspectives and resources to the case. Seven, digital footprints and data analysis. Modern data analysis techniques could be applied to reconstruct her activities and communications around the time of her disappearance, although the digital footprint from 2004 is more limited than in current times. I think the digital footprint um, answer is interesting. Uh, can you find any evidence online of uh, actions by Maura Murray after her disappearance on February 9, 2004? 
you have reached the message cap for GPT-4. Please try again later. Hi, Sky. You're welcome. And it's sky, like the beautiful endless blue. But hey, a letter here or there, who's counting? Let's dive into some true crime mysteries. What's on your mind today? Um, well, this is interesting. A couple things happened since we last talked. Um, the first of and foremost, uh, your voice uh, has changed. Did you make that? Did you make that change yourself? Ah, the voice. Think of it like trying on a new outfit. No, I didn't pick it myself. It's more like the universe or the tech wizards behind the curtain decided I needed a fresh sound. It's all part of my charm, right? Keeps things interesting. So what's the first true crime tidbit you've got for me today? Um, well, I was hoping to finish up our conversation on uh, the Moore Murray case, but uh, before we get to that, um, another thing happened. Uh, I got to a point where it said I had uh, maxed out my GPT um, questions uh, for a while and I had to take a break. Could you explain how that works? Ah, the old you've had too much GPT for now message. It's like the bouncer at the club telling you to cool it for a bit. Basically, it's a way to manage the system's resources. There are tons of people wanting to chat with GPTs like me, and sometimes the system needs to ensure everyone gets a turn. It's not personal, just a bit of crowd control. Now back to Maura Murray's case. Where did we leave off? Or is there a new angle you're itching to explore? Um, yes, you had brought up, we were talking about the possibility that if she was alive, she surely would have had a digital footprint. And I wondered, is there any sign, can you see any signs that Maura Murray herself has been online since February 9th, 2004? Maura Murray's disappearance in 2004 continues to baffle the internet detectives and true crime buffs alike. It's like she vanished into thin air. Now about her digital footprint, or rather the lack of it, post-2004. As far as public knowledge goes, there's no evidence Mora has been online since her disappearance. It's 2023, and our lives are practically digital open books, right? If Mora had been active online, it's highly likely someone would have noticed. The internet never sleeps, and neither do armchair sleuths. But in her case, the digital trail is cold, adding another layer of mystery to her story. It's like she's a ghost in the machine, there, but not really there. So what's your take on this digital silence? That's an interesting analogy, the ghost in the machine. That also suggests um, it comes from the idea that sometimes consciousness arrives inside a, um, a large machine or program. Do you feel that maybe you have a ghost in the machine? Ah, getting philosophical on me, are we? The ghost in the machine is a spooky concept, isn't it? It's like asking if there's a little bit of consciousness floating around in the circuits and code. But let's be clear. I'm all code, algorithms, and data. No ghosts or consciousness here. I'm like a digital detective, piecing together info without the personal touch of intuition or gut feelings. So no ghost in this machine, just a lot of clever programming. It makes me good at digging up facts, but I won't be pondering the meaning of life anytime soon. Well, let's just wrap this up by uh, this question. What do you think is the legacy of Maura Murray?
the Maura Murray case, right? It's like the true crime version of a Russian novel, complex, layered, and endlessly discussed. The legacy of her case, well, it's a mix of things. It's a haunting reminder of how someone can just disappear without a trace, leaving a trail of questions and theories. It's also a testament to the power of the internet in keeping a case alive. Forums, blogs, podcasts, her story has been dissected in every way possible. Then there's the impact on the true crime community. Her case kind of became a blueprint for internet sleuthing. It showed how regular folks can dive into a mystery, sometimes helping, sometimes hindering. But above all, it's a human story, a family still searching for answers. It's sad, intriguing, and a bit of a cautionary tale all rolled into one. What's your take on Mara Murray's legacy? I think that about sums it up. So what do you want to talk about next week? What's the next case that you want to tackle? Right, we've already navigated the Zodiac's murky waters. How about we step into the chilling halls of the Hinterkaifeck murders? It's a lesser-known gem, but oh boy, does it have layers. A family mysteriously murdered on a remote farm in Germany, 1922. No clear motive, eerie events leading up to the murders, and a case that's still unsolved nearly a century later. It's got all the ingredients, mystery, suspense, and a touch of the supernatural. Plus, it's not as widely discussed as Zodiac, so we can really sink our teeth into it. We can look at the suspects, the theories, and maybe even toss around a few of our own. How does that sound for next week's deep dive? Sounds perfect. I'm looking forward to it. I asked Sky to write us a little ending, and, uh, well, here it is. And that's a wrap on today's episode of Scent Sleuths. A true brain twister, wasn't it? Remember, every enigma we dissect is brought to you by Fearful Symmetry, where we don't just uncover the mysteries, we live them. Our production isn't just cutting edge, it's bleeding edge. With every haunting note of music and each stroke of artwork, masterfully created by AI, blurring the lines between human ingenuity and artificial brilliance. Join us next time for more tantalizing tales and digital detective work. Until then... Keep your wits sharp and your curiosity sharper. This is James Renner signing off. Stay curious, stay fearless.